Ameda Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Fighting cybercriminals is a challenging task. Laura Mather, cybersecurity expert, talked about her time at eBay fighting cybercriminals in the early 2000s. Laura explained different attacks that she saw and how these were being tackled back then. We also talked about Silvertail Systems, a company she co-founded in 2008 to build systems that other companies could use to fight cybercriminals. Laura also explained the challenges of getting funding and how the panorama is changing for entrepreneurs. I want to point out that this interview was recorded at the end of April and a lot has changed since then. We started seeing more conversations about funding to unrepresented groups. I followed up with Laura about this and I included her latest thoughts at the end of the show when we discussed this topic. In 2017, Laura was the recipient of the Abby Award for Technology Entrepreneurship. Abby Awards are presented by AnitaB.org, a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50 50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abby Awards honor and celebrate women who have led technical innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of previous Abby Award winners. Before we move on with the interview, I'm excited to announce that season one of the 5-Minute Mentor podcast is now available. In this podcast, you'll get advice from prominent people in tech, authors, journalists, artists, and more. Go to mentors.fm for more information. Thank you. Laura Mather, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to talk about cybersecurity a lot, which is an area that you've worked on since you were early in your career. First, I want to begin with the panorama at the time you finished school. You completed a PhD in computer science in 1998 at the University of Colorado. Can you talk about what it was like coming out of school into the tech industry back then? Sure. I started my career at the National Security Agency, which was fairly interesting. I'll be honest, though, all the really hot topics were being worked on in places like Silicon Valley. So there I was in D.C. and doing interesting work. I liked, you know, feeling like I was helping the government and helping our country. But I was super envious of the folks who were on the West Coast, I felt like they had the most interesting problems to tackle, that their work had a lot of impact. So that was a way to start my career that felt like I wasn't really starting, that I was just kind of getting my feet wet in an area that I had some interest in, but not a ton of interest. And mostly I was looking West and feeling very envious of the folks that were on the West Coast. So you're mentioning you're in D.C. working at the NSA, and then after that, you moved to work at Encyclopedia Britannica, right? I did, yeah. I looked at, I actually interviewed for a bunch of jobs in Silicon Valley. One of them was at a company called InfoSeq, which was a precursor to Google. This was 1999. Google wasn't around yet. And uh, interviewed for a position at InfoSeq. I interviewed for, with Britannica for a position there. So 
I was definitely exploring my options at the time. Can you give some context around Britannica and you know what people were doing at the time? This is uh, early 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah. I joined them, right? I think my first day was January 6th of uh, 2000, a lifetime ago. I was working for Britannica.com. Britannica had uh, started their online presence a couple of years earlier, but really wanted to understand the users of their website, of Britannica.com. My job was to delve into the data, look at how people were clicking through the website, what queries they were doing, what results they would get from those queries, whether or not they would stick around, whether or not they would pay us, and try and really get an understanding of that kind of trend data. It was essentially web trends for the Britannica website. Web trends had just gotten started right around 2000. I didn't even know about them when Britannica hired me. So I built a very rudimentary version of web trends for Britannica.com. And after that is when you started really diving into cybersecurity at eBay in specific. And I've heard you mention in the past that somehow they put together NSA and your online experience at Britannica, and it seemed like a perfect fit for cybersecurity. Can you talk a bit about this? Yeah. eBay was getting targeted by cyber criminals at the time. Prior to eBay, the cyber criminals had really focused on AOL, if anyone listening to this remembers a company called AOL. They were the main focus of the cyber criminals until eBay came along. And then the criminals saw a real treasure trove of opportunity to steal money from people using the eBay platform. Now, the executives at eBay realized that this activity was new. No one had done this before. No one had used a website to steal money from people. And because of that, they didn't know who to hire to go after these folks. They wanted to hire law enforcement, but when you talk to people in law enforcement, especially in 2003, those people had no experience with online. You talk to people who worked online, those people had no experience dealing with criminals. And the poor executives at eBay were tearing their hair out saying, who do we hire to do this? The fact that I had experience with the National Security Agency, so I had some experience understanding the way people think when they're trying to evade others, etc. And then I had done this work for Britannica.com, essentially trying to understand user behavior on the Britannica.com site. That looked like about as close as they were going to get to someone who could possibly look at this problem with, you know, a little bit of experience. And so the fact that if I were to map out my whole career from PhD to NSA to Britannica, it looks like this jagged line. And yet that jagged line fit exactly into what eBay wanted, which was fortuitous for me, for sure. Exactly. And once you join eBay and you start figuring out how to tackle this online criminals and there are all these attacks coming. Can you give some examples of the kind of attacks that you were seeing? Yeah, the eBay platform unfortunately made it so that cyber criminals could find ways to steal money from people. The biggest attack vector, we like to call it, was 
what we call second chance offers. And there literally are things on the eBay platform called the second chance offer. But what the criminals love to do is they love to see that an auction happened for usually a fairly high priced item, something around the $1,000 to $2,000 price range. And they would look at the bidders because eBay was very transparent. They wanted all the bidders to see who else had bid and how much to make sure that people trusted that it was real people bidding, that they were you know, in the midst of a legitimate auction. The criminals would then look at the person who didn't win the auction, but had the second highest bid. And their whole goal was to get that person's email address, reach out to them and say, hey, I noticed that you bid $1,800 on a Rolex. Guess what? I have that exact same Rolex and I'll give it to you for $1,500. Now, granted, they didn't have the Rolex. The other part of the eBay platform that was not ideal for protecting our users was that when someone purchased something, the winner of the auction would send the money to the seller. And when the seller received the money, then they would send the item. So if you're a criminal, you could say to someone, I have that Rolex, just send me $1,500. And as soon as I receive your money, I'll send you the Rolex. Now, an unwary, or sorry, an uneducated or unaware eBay user might get very excited about this. I'm going to get that watch I wanted and it's only $1,500. They send the $1,500 and guess what? They never hear from the other person again, the supposed seller. So it was my job to prevent that type of criminal activity. And I'll say that it was not at all an easy job. The criminals were tenacious. The criminals didn't have to QA the stuff that they built. (laughs) They could launch any tool that they wanted into cyberspace immediately, and they would find very creative ways to try and steal money from eBay users. And during this time, were you trying to generalize a system or a way in which you could prevent this attack? Or was it mostly on the go, like you see this attack and then you try to craft a solution for it? In the beginning, it was very much on the go. You know, we're seeing this functionality on the website being used to target eBay users. We're going to fix that. And then the criminals would always respond. After, I was only there three years, but after maybe a year and a half, we started to get a little bit smarter about should we think about how, if we shut off this attack vector, where are they going to go next? And how do we prevent that? And in fact, by the time I left, we tried to be much smarter and say, if they're going to go anywhere, we actually would really like it if they went over here, maybe because there's not very many users there and we could let those users know, or maybe because the users on this other functionality are much more savvy about these criminals, right? There, We would think about that and we would try to actually push the criminals because we knew they weren't just going to walk away and be done. But if we could try and encourage them to go to a place where either we already knew was protected or maybe was much less damaging for eBay users, we tried to even get that sophisticated about how we responded to them. 
And I've heard you mention in other talks that toward the end, it was so much work. You, you kind of were overworked, right? And then you left. Absolutely. I mean, there's a really challenging mindset in security, which is, again, the, the criminals are never going to give up. There was a tough situation personally where I would be sitting at work and it would be 7.30 at night and I would think to myself, I could write up this next business requirements document to try and prevent the you know, this horrible thing that is happening to eBay users and I can stay for two more hours to do that. Or I could go home and let this horrible thing happen to eBay users for an extra day. And that can be a very draining decision-making process, especially day after day after day. And then finally too, eBay, as any business does, had to prioritize Are they going to put resources towards security and protecting users, or are they going to put resources towards new users and new functionality? And I think we had also gotten pretty good at our jobs. And so the losses due to security had gone down quite a bit. And that made the business think, maybe we don't need to invest in this thing called security because that seems to be going okay for now. Anyone who's actually in security will recognize that that usually means you're about to have a spike in some kind of incident because the minute you stop investing, the criminals know it and they go after you. But it can be very hard as a security professional to have the business tell you what you're doing is not super important. So we're not investing in that. Thank you very much for what you have done though. Exactly. And one thing I like from your trajectory is that you have the work, you were overworked and then you leave, but you're still thinking about this space. And in 2008, you co-founded Silver Tail Systems, where you are bringing a lot of your experience from your days at eBay, fighting cyber criminals. And at this moment, you are taking a step back to think about systems that you would need to fight attacks at eBay and how other companies online could potentially use these tools. Can you describe some of the main ideas behind the system and this company? Yeah, absolutely. I noticed two things after I had stepped back from eBay for a few months. The first thing that I noticed was the attacks we saw at eBay were starting to target other companies. And That has something to do with how well we did at eBay. The criminals are happy to go after the weakest link. And if there is a strong defense in one part of the internet, they're happy to go find a place that does not have quite as strong a defense. That's actually a good return on investment for their time. And so stepping back from eBay, I went to work for a company called Mark Monitor, And Mark Monitor protected many different companies from something called phishing. And because I got to talk to all these companies, whether it was banks or e-commerce companies, and it definitely was not at the level we were seeing at eBay, but I start to hear some of the same stories that I had heard from eBay users of, hey, you know, I'm at this bank and we've got this weird thing happening where, you know, I forgot my password functions getting a lot of traffic and that's not what we would expect. And, you know, just different stories like that. And I realized, wow, criminals are really diversifying 
and they're going after any place where they can make some money. So that was one realization I had. Once I realized that, the key was to start thinking about if I could do eBay all over again, what type of system would I build? Because I had three years of headache and different obstacles that I had had to overcome. And why not build it the way I wished it had it would have ended up, but start from that place. And what we realized when we built the system for Silvertail was that you need something very flexible that is monitoring things in real time, that is giving alerts in real time, and that can also respond essentially within minutes at the most, maybe even seconds, because again, these criminals are constantly revising their attacks, constantly looking for new ways to deal with this, constantly looking for new ways to steal money. And if we could build a system that could be as agile as the criminals, that's what you want to arm our customers with at Silvertail. And so that was what we built. So you found that in terms of the system components, the ability to monitor in real time and was it to update things quickly is what helped be on par with criminals? Absolutely. So to know within a few minutes that something new is happening on a website, you know, at eBay and at other companies before something like Silvertail was available, it might take weeks before Customer support has gotten enough of these very strange phone calls that they decide to raise it up to someone in the security group of, hey, all of a sudden people are saying that they keep getting these forgot my password emails or that they, you know, have seen this strange activity on their account. Why not make it so you don't have to wait for your user to tell customer support and then customer support to tell you, let's make it so the system is looking for these things, looking for anything that looks out of the ordinary and is giving you immediate indication when that type of thing happens. And then when possible, letting you respond to those new behaviors as quickly as possible. And the security industry is an area that is still growing. Like you said, criminals don't give up. They keep updating. Attacks are more sophisticated. And I've heard you and other people in this space say how the number of jobs are growing in cybersecurity and we don't have enough people that will be able to do them. So what are some of the things that you liked from working in this area throughout your career? Oh my gosh. I mean, Security is such a rewarding field to be in. I mean, let's be clear, it can be very frustrating too. The criminals are beating you know, you at, at various phases, but then to be able to say there was this attack against my website and I was able to find a way to prevent it from happening, that is incredible. And knowing that you are out there protecting people's money, heck, even their sanity, right? We all know that if we've ever had our identity stolen or you've talked to someone who had their identity stolen, the heartache and the rigmarole you have to go through to deal with it is just a nightmare. And the fact that people who work in security every day can say, I am helping to make sure that doesn't happen, that can be 
an amazing feeling and an amazing calling to life, I think, and to, to a career. And what would you recommend to someone that's been in the industry, they're software engineers, like they have been exposed to, to programming? Are there recommendations that you would say into how to start looking into this area? I mean, the best you can do now is actually get a degree in it. There wasn't degrees in cybersecurity when I graduated from school, but now there are degrees. But there are even online courses you can take. If you're an engineer, just you know, look for job openings in the security engineering group. Oftentimes for an engineer, you don't actually need security experience. And you can just go do engineering projects in the security uh, group at your company and start to get some of that experience. That's actually uh, what happened with my co-founder, who is also my husband. He was an engineer at eBay, and I was doing all of this anti-fraud and security work. And he came to me and said, I have been coding up all of the projects that you have dreamt up and I'm helping you to protect the site. And now I want to do what you're doing. I want to create policy that does that. I want to try and figure out how to detect these attacks. And so he was able to successfully transition from being an engineer and understanding how the bits move through the website to understanding how the criminals thought about how to use the website in their activities. So there's lots of paths for this. I think it's similar to almost any job. If there's something that interests you, you know, find a way to get a foot in the door, even if it's not exactly the job that you're looking for, and then find a way to be useful. Everyone's always looking for someone to volunteer to help with things. Just find a way to take on some tasks that might be relevant and show that you are interested. I, I think that can be a great way to do things. Exactly. I want to talk a bit now about the entrepreneurship aspects of this. You founded several companies. Right now we've talked about Silver Tail Systems, the security company. I've heard you mention in other talks that it's challenging to raise money and At some point, you were getting over 40 rejections. In your opinion, what are some reasons for getting rejections? I mean, let's be clear. There is bias in the venture capital world. There is. It is a male-dominated field. It's similar, in my opinion, to computer science. When I got my PhD, I think 12% of graduates were women. The startup space is probably even fewer as far as founders go. We know it's way fewer as far as female founders who actually get funded. So it just is an area where there still is a lot of people who have a mindset of what an entrepreneur looks like. And unfortunately, as in a lot of other fields, People who are, quote unquote, hiring someone, whether that means they're actually giving them a job or maybe giving them money to start their company, we as humans often do that more for people who look like we do than we do for people who don't look like we do. And there's plenty of studies showing that that's how venture capitalists work as well. Exactly. And in addition to that, you know, where we have this bias of, like you're saying, it's a male-dominated field. 
do you think that's a big component or there can also be reasons that you can tackle like they can tell you well you need twice the number of users or some more actionable reasons or that wasn't your experience well so let's be clear most of the comments that venture capitalists give to any entrepreneur, most of the comments are, here's what you're missing, right? And because that's their job. Their job is actually to find the holes in what you're doing to reduce the venture capitalist risk when they invest. What that means is they're very good at finding holes, even when maybe those same holes exist in another entrepreneur's business model. In fact, I did have a conversation once with a venture capitalist. This was a male, but someone who's actually really open to trying to understand what was going on with his own thought processes. And I went in and they asked me all kinds of very challenging questions, which they should, they should. And at the end, they, you know, and they would ask me a question, I would come back with an answer and they would ask me a sort of a deeper part of that same question, I'd come back with an answer. And we had this kind of great conversation. At the end, they said, wow, we don't have this kind of really deep dive conversation with our the other entrepreneurs who come in. And I said, well, because you're not holding their feet to the fire the way you are holding my feet to the fire, right? Yeah. And you should have seen this venture capitalist, his eyes kind of lit up and he, you could see it dawn on his face of oh my gosh, I'm not holding certain entrepreneurs accountable in the same way that I hold women accountable. Wow. And so the point is that if you want to say no to anything, you can find a reason to say no. I mean, I would challenge the listeners out there. Think about your favorite thing, whether it's like your favorite restaurant to go to. It's something we can fantasize about in this times, right? But Or your favorite dinner or whatever. And then decide that you're going to find a reason you don't like it. You can find that. I would challenge anyone to find something where they can't find some reason that they don't like it, right? The human ingenuity is just so amazing in that way. But what that does is it lets venture capitalists rationalize the fact that they're turning away a lot of women because they say, oh, she didn't have quite as many users. Oh, she didn't have quite a good answer when I asked this question. Oh, I think her monetization plan isn't quite as good as this other one. And yet someone else will walk in who looks just like them, who maybe hasn't done nearly as much planning, nearly as much research, doesn't understand the space, and they get super excited about it because it looks like something that they recognize, right? Or they see potential or something. Yeah. They're not there yet, but I see it. I literally use air quotes, potential, right? It's like, it's so funny because yeah, I get it. I can see it. I mean, I know I've done it too. I know I've done it too, right? I don't know. Maybe I get annoyed with someone and then all of a sudden I can nitpick things and find things they do wrong all the time, even though those same things wouldn't have bothered me the week before, right? We can do that as human beings, but it ends up impacting the outcomes. And what's actually really sad is it impacts the actual outcomes for venture capitalists, right? Because there have been these studies, whether it's from the caper capital folks 
and others that startups from minority groups, whether that's women or people of color, they actually do better. They have better return on capital. They have much less consternation within their exec teams. There's all these things, all these metrics where those companies look good. And yet these traditional VCs who have a cookie cutter way of looking at what they're going to invest in, they miss out because what walks in the door doesn't fit inside the cookie cutter. Exactly. Right now I'm starting to hear more and more conversations around this. Are you optimistic for the next five years, let's say, that we'll start seeing more funding to minorities? Well, the pandemic, I'm worried, is going to change everything. If you had asked me four months ago, to be honest, I'm not sure my answer would have been that much better. I may have been slightly more optimistic. For it's hard to tell. Yeah, well, I worry that with the pandemic, what happens when people get scared is they fall even more back onto what is comfortable for them. And what is comfortable for people are people who look like them, unfortunately. I will say that if we were able to go back to, let's say, November, and you were to ask me this same question four months ago, I actually was having some frustration because I would see things like, you know, so-and-so just launched a fund for Black entrepreneurs, but the fund would be $10 million, right? And then you look and some of the big VC firms even now are closing, you know, $3 billion funds, right? So how does $10 million compete with a $3 billion fund? You know, I look at $10 million and I think that's not even investment in one company, not even. And these people, they have such great intentions and I certainly don't want to fault that, but They would say, you know, and we're going to use this $10 million and invest in 30 companies. And I just think, oh my gosh, like you don't understand what you're competing against. If SoftBank's going to go put a billion dollars in a company and they're going to have all that money to do marketing and to hire people and do all these things, a company that's getting less than a million dollars, even less than $10 million is unfortunately set up to fail. They just are. And What I do hope, maybe a way to turn this more positive, is I do hope that the times we're in now are going to reset this growth at all costs mentality that we've been seeing. Because I do think that could help the companies that are founded by people of color and women. Because I do think when it is about a realistic business model, and realistic growth, that does start to help the playing field get a little more leveled. When it's about hype, when it's about spending as much as you can, and then you pile onto that the fact that women and people of color have such a hard time getting capital at all, let alone exorbitant amounts of capital, that is a really difficult situation to try and overcome. So, If there is any kind of silver lining to this moment of time, maybe it is going to be that a realistic business plan will look better to VCs and be more successful. And if so, that could make things a little bit better. I followed up with Laura in July to get her thoughts on this question again. The reason for that is because in the United States, 
we started seeing more racial injustice activism. This is what she wanted to add, quote, With the racial injustice activism that has occurred over the last several weeks, we are seeing some investment firms looking to invest more money in underrepresented groups. Two examples include SoftBank, pledging $300 million in contributions or investments to minority groups, and Andreessen Horowitz Talent X Opportunity Fund, with an initial investment of $2.2 million. These are definitely a start, and I hope the venture capital community can continue to create funds like this. End quote. I know we're almost out of time, so I just want to end this interview with a couple of questions related to the Abbey Award that you received in 2017. You were the recipient of the award for technology entrepreneurship. What did it mean to you getting this award? I mean, holy cow, the fact that an organization, which is now called anitab.org, <laughs> it wasn't then, chose me as the recipient of this award. I'm not sure there is a greater honor. Uh, you know, here are all these women who are so technical and are so accomplished. And to have them recognize the work that I had done as being beneficial. I mean, that's all I've ever wanted to do. I loved, like I said, I loved cybersecurity because it helped people. And I loved doing my cybersecurity company because I loved knowing that I was protecting at one point, it was like 2 billion online accounts. Holy cow, that was so amazing. And that's why I start companies is to try and have impact in the world and to have this amazing organization recognize that I had impact, I'm not sure that there could be anything more meaningful. And did you see an impact in your career in any way from getting this award? I mean, it's definitely a recognition that other people look up to for sure. And, you know, being able to say that I got this award, being able to put it in my signature line, That opened doors for me. It definitely got people interested. It meant that, you know, I, I'm, of course, I can't do any kind of A-B test, but I would love to of how many people actually responded to my email when they saw that versus not. But I feel like because I had that to point to, it gave me some legitimacy. You know, obviously, I had done, even if I hadn't won the award, I had done the work I had done. But that solidified it and sort of summarized it nicely for people of here's someone who knows what she's doing as an entrepreneur, who has built things that are impactful. It's the way to create this label that lets people know that without me having to say it and two, without having someone have to spend three minutes explaining it, which is fantastic. What I've also heard from other winners is from getting this award, well, anitab.org writes articles about it and people notice they might be familiar with your company now and they're like oh this is exactly what we need right now and they found out because they saw you got the award and then they look up all your work that kind of stuff exactly i mean let's be clear any kind of pr especially positive pr is fantastic and when you're doing a startup holy cow you'll take anything you can get but having something that well sort of distributed. I had like old professors reach out to me and say, you know, 
I just saw that you won this award and we haven't talked in 15 years, but congratulations. I mean, it was incredible the amount of people who saw that because of the reach that anitab.org has. That's what makes it amazing. Well, Laura, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thank you.